in the living of any human life, one of the most important and unquestionably one of the most defining moments in the unfolding of life are those moments when we move from an experience of separation, from an experience of feeling divided, of feeling as if we're in some sort of solitary confinement, to feeling the oneness, to feeling connected, to feeling intimacy. And this movement from separation to wholeness presents itself in so many different ways. For example, it may be that we feel separate from someone that we love. It might be that there are feelings of anger or fear or envy or jealousy. And it's almost as if those intervene and there's a feeling of disconnection, a feeling of being out of sorts, as if the heart is closed to the other. And there is such an agony in the felt experience of that separation. And then it may be that um, it changes, that there might be a gesture from the other, it might be that the emotion of fear or anger, whatever it was, subsides. And then there's that feeling of homecoming, that feeling of renewed intimacy, of renewed oneness. It's almost like a celebration of the heart, that we kind of back home, the transition from, from separation to, to wholeness. And perhaps for you like me, that same process can unfold within ourselves. You know, there are times when we feel so fragmented. There are times when we feel scattered and separate from the deeper currents of ourselves. That there is a feeling like life is being lived uh, like a leaf in the wind, blown around by the circumstances that come and go, and that we've lost a sense of alignment, a sense of rootedness, a sense of connection to what is essential. And then, for whatever reason, the, the Christian mystic would say, it was a moment of grace, that it's almost like, ah, we're back home. There's a feeling of wholeness, there's a feeling of of being what the Taoists said, in the flow, in the Tao, where, where we back with a sense of harmony. We, we are, are back home. And the way of meditation is a way of befriending both of these landscapes, the landscapes of separation, the landscapes of, of, of feeling home, of feeling a oneness, of feeling an intimacy. The nuclear physicists are now talking about not only are we interconnected with one another, but that ourselves interpenetrate each other. That it's almost as if there is no fundamental separation between us. So intimate are we with one another. And so the way of meditation is both feeling the agony of feeling separate, what the Sufis call the homesickness of the heart, the homesickness for the beloved, for God, whatever uh, um, 
uh, um, conceptualization serves us. Living that homesickness, the retreat here in in January uh, was a lot about the homesickness of the heart. That was actually the talk that I offered. It was about living this homesickness of the heart. And then it's also about becoming more and more intimate and familiar and befriending the experience of oneness. Because it's almost, it's almost sad, it's heartbreaking to think that Many, many, perhaps most human beings can live an entire human life feeling fundamentally disconnected both from other human beings and from themselves. And so in our felt capacity, and perhaps you already have a sense in the meditation as it's unfolded thus far today, we're cultivating a capacity to be with what is difficult, to be with the emotions that arise that we wish were otherwise to be with a body that is perhaps not as cooperative as we would like it to be. And so we enter that landscape of feeling disconnected from the body, from another when the emotions come up, of feeling disconnected from this beautiful world when a sound comes up that we don't like and we're pushing away a part of the world. It's almost like in our willingness to befriend this existence without preference, we, we open to the intimacy that is always there. And for me and perhaps for you too, one of the most beautiful aspects and remembrances of this journey is that it's not about cultivating something that is not there. It's not about finding something outside of ourselves because we're deficient and we need that in order to complete ourselves. It's not about being with the right teacher or the right retreat about doing it right instead of wrong. That really, in essence, it's a part of, of a path of remembering what is already there. Essentially, we are intimate with one another. We interpenetrate one another. We are a part of a great web out of which we can never fall. And the process, what brings us here, is about cultivating a felt capacity to remember the essential beauty that we already are. And the mind that sometimes feels so cooperative, in its essence it is a mind that is unutterably aware, indescribably present. And that the way of spiritual practice is just about understanding all the veils of mind, the forces of mind that separate us from what is already true what is already there. And that's why I love those teachings that emphasize that there's nothing to do. We, we are already awake, we are, in ready, we are already enlightened, we are already there. It's just about remembering. And so what I'd like to do today is to explore what so often feels to me like a paradox of, so we make an effort and we're already there. And where is it that we're going if where we want to get to is already here? And so as best I can today, I'd like to have some fun and explore that uh, landscape together. And as we look back over time and we look over the world around us, we look into our own hearts, 
I've always felt that perhaps one of the most agonizing and insidious expressions of collective human suffering are all the ways in which we are socialized inwardly and outwardly as women and as men how we are socialized into playing and embodying persona and uh, bodying labels and playing roles that dovetail with the expected behaviors and the social mores of, uh, of what is associated collectively with our gender, whatever our genders might be. And in the end it really doesn't matter very much uh, where these expectations come from, from where they emanate, whether it's from uh, religious or societal, whether it's from spiritual or political or traditional overbearance, it really doesn't matter where these expectations, these gender expectations come from. What is most true is that these gender roles, to the extent that we embrace them, become an imprisonment and they are a constriction on, on, on the heart. They circumscribe the capacity of our heart to know its, its fullness. They certainly stultify the spirit and they must also impede the flowering that is the birthright of every human being. Inhibiting a blossoming into the experience of human life that is unfragmented, that is total, that is whole, and that is inclusive of every facet, every aspect, every part of ourselves. The way of meditation is not about including some aspects of ourselves and deciding that other aspects are really not spiritual enough or that there are parts that we prefer not to look at. The vision of practice is 360 degrees, inclusive of everything, 24-7, every moment of the day. And as our species, I feel, really upon this beautiful planet seems apparently to be hurtling towards the brink of some sort of self-annihilation. It feels critical that those of us who are stirred to love, those of us who are stirred to live a life that is whole, that is undefined, by the energies around us that would endeavor to box us and that we also carry within us all these patterns of, of self-limitation that we really have a felt experience of what is our essential and uh, um, fundamental birthright where our response to life and to our world and when the living of every moment of this precious human life oops, is lived with an allegiance only, only to what is true, to, to love and, and to decency. And so we come to this point of how is it that we as women or we as men might in a very real 
experienced way embody the qualities of the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine because these are questions that go far beyond the imprisonment and the constraints of, 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 our, of our gender. Rumi, the wonderful uh, Sufi poet who I actually recently discovered is the most, is the best-selling poet in the world today. Rumi is the most beloved poet in our world. And I feel like in some ways he embodies for me more than anyone else this, this lived experience of both the masculine and the feminine. And he says, God turns you from one feeling to another and teaches by means of opposites so that you have two wings to fly and not one. God turns you from one feeling to another and teaches by means of opposites so that you have two wings to fly, not one. And everything that arises in this incredible world in which we live, everything that is conditioned, everything that is manifested in this world has these, this dual aspect, the aspect of the feminine and the aspect of the masculine. And if you look back through the corridors of time to the heart of all the mystical traditions of whatever kind that are deeply concerned with the transformation of the heart and the mind, one finds again and again the most stirring um, acknowledgement of the interwoven, interconnectedness of the feminine and the masculine. Perhaps one of the most beautiful is in Taoism, uh, the I Ching, the Book of Changes, considered by most Taoists to be the kind of heart of Taoism. The first two hexagrams that are of the masculine and the feminine. And the first um, of the hexagrams, the creative, is the yang, the masculine. And this is uh, an eating by watching me, which is one that I use. And he says, like an object and its shadow, the energies of the masculine and the feminine cannot live separately. He says, although yang is the initiator, the masculine is the initiator, it is not correct to think that it precedes the feminine. For at their deepest levels, the creative and the receptive beget one another. The progressive and the recessive actually exist within each other. Whereas yang is expansive, stimulative, and transforming the masculine, he says, yin completes, the feminine completes, structures and accomplishes what has been accomplished by yang. The feminine perfectly complements yang by being responsive, consolidating, sustaining, and conserving. And it must always be remembered that there is, there is the feminine within the masculine and the masculine within the feminine. Their relationship is best symbolized by the Tai Chi symbol, which we all know, the yin-yang symbol. Their relationship uh, represents both their duality and their unity. And when these two energies interact, all things manifest and all things evolve. However, the ultimate truth 
is that they are never separated. And dualities of every kind are only the result of a fragmentary and incomplete view of the great oneness, that, that landscape of separation. And then he says, the, the yin energy, the receptiveness, he says, becoming a good follower of the truth requires practicing the highest virtues of the feminine, as expressed by, by Lao Tzu in his Tao Te Ching, where he emphasizes being soft, being gentle, compliant, and being humble. These virtues are the essence of the feminine and also the essence of the earth. Too many people struggle to be above, and this has led to all the disturbances and all the wars in the world. People never realize that their true significance and their worth reside in the very being of their individual lives, and that Mother Earth and the, and the entire universe embrace all beings equally. Every truthful individual life is like the earth, low and receptive, motherly and gentle, giving support to everyone and everything selfishly and without discrimination. To be like the earth is to be like heaven. And so how this for me and perhaps for you too, reveals itself in the unfolding of the spiritual journey is when is it, when is it necessary to embody some of the qualities of the masculine, to be active, to be directive and how is it that sometimes it's necessary to actually bring some effort in the practice to be present and that sometimes there's just a resting there's, a, there's almost like an opening of the awareness, an inclusive, an experience of the mother into which everything arises with, without preference, without discrimination. I'd like to look together, if we may for a moment, just at more specifically at some of the qualities of these, these, these uh, two, two, two aspects of life. The, the masculine, the sacred masculine essentially is the energy that is creative, it's active, it's progressive, it's very linear. There is a fierceness in the masculine energy, you know, it's the one that says, by God, I'm going to know what it means to be free from suffering in this life. Very, very um, assertive and dynamic. And the masculine essentially just this getting a little steamy here. If this like turns around, will somebody throw something at me please? You can just keep an eye on that, it's happened. The masculine is, is a goal orientated and it's about perseverance, you know. The, the essence of the masculine is that it's kind of like one step at a time, there's almost like a feeling of doggedness to the, to the masculine, a resolve. The instruction that I give in the meditation practice, you know, the willingness to begin again and again and again, is a real masculine thing. It's just kind of taking us by the scruff of the neck and just beginning again, you know, without judging ourselves, without retribution or recrimination or guilt 
just starting again. And sometimes, I don't know how it is for you, sometimes it almost feels as though it takes every ounce of, of resolve, mustering it and starting again. And yet it's the essence of practice because it's the nature of the undeveloped mind to be scattered, to be all over, to be called away by the pleasant, to push away what is unpleasant. And in the felt experience of beginning again and again and again and bringing ourselves to what is without press, uh, preference, we begin to develop the capacity to be with whatever it is that arises. And in that felt capacity to be with whatever arises, we begin to see that all that separates us from our birthright, all that separates us, as the Sufis would say, from the beloved, from God, from the experience of truth, from Nirvana, as the Buddhists would say, everything is ultimately workable. We no longer are a victim of fear and anger, envy, jealousy, boredom, sleepiness, because we have an experienced-based faith, born of, of spiritual practice and our willingness to be present and to begin again and again, that ultimately everything is workable. Certainly in my life it feels like the greatest self-blessing has been the ever-deepening realization that situations, no matter how difficult, ultimately are workable. Not as a belief, not because anybody told me, but from the experience. This is like the core of the Buddha's teaching. Everything that I say to you, in the essence, is just words coming out of my mouth. And the, the Buddha said on my first retreat, he said, I heard these words and this is what made me realize in that moment that this felt trustworthy. He said, believe nothing merely because you've been told it or because it's traditional or even perhaps because you yourself imagined it. He says, don't believe what your teacher tells you out of respect for your teacher. But by whatever way, by thorough examination, you find to be one leading to good and happiness for all creatures, and that of course includes ourselves. He says that path, follow like the moon, follows the path of the stars. And essentially it has to be that way, you know. We could come to a retreat like this where it's beautiful and we've got this beautiful place and the environment is lovely. We don't even have that great noise that was threatening earlier, although of course we could have it any moment. And it's like beautiful, but nobody can meditate for us. Nobody can bring us back again, you know. In the end, the responsibility is ours. Do we bring ourselves to the table of life or do, no, or do we not? You know, as Christ said in the beautiful excerpt from the Gnostic Gospels, where he says, what we bring forth from within us will save us and what we don't bring forth from within us will destroy us. Essentially is what he's saying, what is unexamined circumscribes our capacity for the life that is our, our birthright. And so the masculine is about piercing the veils of, of delusion, all that separate us from God. And there's this great poem by Rumi where, you know, he's, you know, he's definitely embodying the masculine where he says, um, 
He says, the prophets have wondered to themselves, how long should we keep pounding this cold iron? How long do we have to whisper into an empty cage? So don't be timid. Load the ship and set out. No one knows for certain whether the vessel will sink or reach the harbor. Just don't be one of those merchants who won't risk the ocean. This is much more important than losing or making money. This is your connection to God. Think of the fear and the hope that you have about your livelihood. They make you go to work diligently every day. Now consider what the prophets have done. Abraham wore fire for an anklet. Moses spoke to the sea. David molded iron and Solomon rode the wind. Then he says, work in the invisible world at least as hard as you do in the visible. Be a companion with the prophets invisibly so that no one knows. You can't imagine what prophet will come when one of those generous ones invites you into his fire go quickly don't say but will it burn me will it hurt rise and move around the center around the the fire as the pilgrims ride ride around and wind around the Kaaba in Mecca being still is how one clay clod sticks to another in sleep while movement wakes us up and unlocks new blessings. So masculine, movement wakes us up and unlocks new blessings. How long should we keep pounding the cold iron? How long do we whisper into an empty cage? You know, embodying the masculine. And so essentially, if, uh, if the masculine had a voice, the voice would say, God is not here. God is over there and the whole journey is about finding God. It's almost like moving from the world of manifestation, separation, to the, the oneness, to, to the intimacy. And then there's the feminine. And if the feminine had a voice, the feminine would say, God is already here. God is an ever presence. There's nowhere to get to. Almost seems like a paradox, doesn't it? The feminine is, as watching me said in the I Ching, is receptive, is nurturing. The, the essence of the sacred feminine is soft and gentle and compliant. The feminine would say, your Buddha nature is already manifest. It's there as an ever-present possibility. Your Christ nature is absolutely your birthright and it's nowhere but within your heart right now. There's this great saying in the, uh, uh, in the Gnostic Gospels again where Christ says, you know, if you think that the kingdom of God is in heaven, the birds are going to get there before you. He said, if you think the kingdom of God is in the bottom of the sea, he said, the fish are going to get there before you. He said, the kingdom of God is within you and around you right here and right now. Such an expression 
of, of, of the feminine. The feminine uh, sometimes is told in a lot of the mythologies as, as being like a song that we've all as human beings forgotten. And we're in the process, hopefully, of remembering. It's not that we bad, not that we sinners, we just forgot. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we're remembering. And in our willingness to be mindful, in our willingness to be present, we are inclining the mind more and more to remembering, according to the feminine, what is already there. And the essence of the feminine is, is the mysterious. The, in sacred geometry, the feminine is always a circle. It's always complete, whole, inclusive, and utterly mysterious, almost like, like a womb, that, that the, the feminine is always complete. The feminine could never be anything other than complete. And so the feminine would say, we are already complete and perfect. How on earth could we be sinners? Maybe that's one of the reasons why the feminine has been so sublimated in so many of the religions. It carries the mystery of, of, uh, of, uh, of creation. And the feminine says that we could never ever be, be deficient, that, that we are complete. And the work of the feminine is to make this experience of our completeness manifest and conscious, to, to bring this knowledge of, of our perfection uh, into the light of our awareness. And so Rumi uh, here speaking so much in the voice of the feminine says, so beautiful, he says, dissolver of sugar, dissolve me, if this is the time. He says, do it gently, with a touch of a hand or a look. Every morning I wait at dawn for you. That's when it happened before. Or do it suddenly like an execution. How else could I get ready for death? He says, you breathe without a body like a spark. You grieve and I begin to feel lighter. You keep me away with your arm, but the keeping me away pulls me in. It's so feminine, it's so receptive, so mysterious. And so as uh, meditators, if I can be so bold as to say that, it's sometimes really confusing for those of you who are familiar with this tradition. You know, the teachings of the Buddha, for example, that came from Burma are very masculine. They're very specific. It's almost like, you know, Note every changing sensation of the breath. It's almost like awareness of the arising and passing away. And it's possible for the mind to be that present and that clear. That there can be a presence of the arising and passing away of every sensation of the breath, not just of every breath. 
and and as we bring ourselves more and more deeply to the experience of life it's called uh, translated it's dissolution or anicca is the 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 translation of the ancient texts of to this arising and passing away it requires a mind that is very still very focused a very sort of cultivated and trained mind to bring ourselves to an experience of life that is that momentary and it's possible it's not any great thing it's just when we begin again and again and again the mind inclines to the present moment more and more we can have these experiences but a lot of the practices that come out of Burma and parts of Thailand and Sri Lanka are very very masculine there are some ways you even have to write down at the end of every meditation exactly what happened and then go and report it to your teacher so very very goal orientated you know there's a book a Burmese book that is called the progress of insight which is about every step of the way and it's almost like one can go to the book and actually place yourself in the unfolding and you can know where you are such a masculine thing you know incredibly masculine thing and then we just change our lens and we look at the Buddhism of Tibet and the Dzogchen teachings and has anybody done Dzogchen practice here? they're beautiful the Dzogchen practices are about resting in the essence of mind and the essence of mind is a mind that is utterly present and all you do is right here right now you just rest in that presence you rest in a mind that is empty of self where where you know there's no Gavin there's no Bill there's no flora mediating controlling choreographing things there's just almost like an emptiness and things are just arising and passing away and it is utterly spacious it's not circumscribed it's not about me and my world it's about everything no borders no perimeters no parameters and the teachings are about cultivating this capacity to rest in what is essentially true for all of us so do you have a sense of the difference so feminine and so masculine and for many people when they come to meditation it's it's really confusing because they think well should I do the Burmese way or should I do the Tibetan way and then not to say all the other ways too that have various flavors of the masculine and feminine and it seems like really the challenge for us is almost like to have a toolbox next to us with all the tools of the feminine or all the tools of the masculine and then we know which tool to haul out and to use in a specific situation like perhaps you had an experience in the meditation instructions today at the beginning it was like we focused the mind a little bit on the breathing a little bit masculine you know just really focusing on the mind and then we just opened a little to include the sounds and the thoughts and the emotion a little bit feminine and then if the mind gets scattered like you know if there's anger or something often there'll be thoughts the mind will get agitated if there isn't concentration then we get a little masculine again and we go back to the breathing and we just stole the mind a little calm the mind and then we open it again and so so we embody the masculine and the feminine in spiritual practice it's so beautiful there's some teachers who say don't meditate they say meditation is the problem and you know in some sense it is the problem 
because we're human beings who like something to hold on to, don't we? I do, you know, something to feel safe. It's got, I've got my meditation practice, you know. I'm a Buddhist, or I'm a Christian, I'm a Sufi, you know. I've got an identity, a box, you know, and then we feel comfortable. And these teachers are saying, no practice, no labels, nothing, just being. And there's a certain wisdom in that too, a beautiful wisdom. Because I've met people and I've seen in myself how even in the most subtle ways we become identified. You know, we start doing yoga and then it's like, yoga is my way, you know. And then we hurt our knee and we can't do yoga and then it's like, oh my God, what am I, you know, if I'm not a yogi, you know. You know? And so the practices within themselves carry both the seeds of our redemption from suffering and they also carry the possibility of in and of themselves becoming a stumbling block. And so it feels like, you know, the masculine and the feminine for me has given me such a workable way of relating to the smorgasbord of spiritual possibilities that surround us these days. You know, if we think of our parents, you know, they grew up in a world where none of this was available, you know. And suddenly with the internet and everything, you know, in this world with open borders, there's so much. And the downside is that we can get a little lost in all the possibilities. And so it feels like the whole unfolding of the practice is the development of a capacity of heart and mind to know these cycles. The cycles when the feminine is called for, the cycle for the masculine, when to be more active, progressive, goal-orientated, eye on the prize, you know, and a time to be receptive, open, gentle, soft, receiving. And that some of these cycles can be the cycle of a lifetime and it can be the cycle of a month, a cycle of a day, a cycle of a meditation session, a cycle of moment to moment to moment, just embodying. But do you get a sense of if we subscribe strongly to our gender, if we're holding our gender as, as a banner, as a flag that defines us, we run the danger of, of um, closing to the possibilities of living a full and total life that embody both the masculine and the feminine. There's certainly, you know, I remember in the beginning years of my practice having a conversation with, with um, a man who I met who was about, <laughs> at the time I thought, he's really old. <laughs> he's probably younger than I am now, but anyway. He, and he said to me, he said, you know, the biggest mistake I made, he was really sincere, he said, the biggest mistake I made was I was just like so fascinated with everything. I did a little bit of that, a little bit of that, and I thought if I do enough of everything, he said, you know, I'll finally get it. And he said, that was the biggest mistake I made. He said, I wish that I'd just kind of chosen something and just stuck with it. There's a certain beauty in being a little masculine. Rumi has this great poem somewhere in there where he talks about be like a chickpea in a pot of soup that's jumping around and all you ask is for the spoon to keep keep you in the pot, jumping, getting hot, jumping, keep in. He says, I don't want to get out the pot. I want to get hotter and hotter and hotter, you know, until it's almost, you know, the fire of, of, of the soup just breaks the heart and we're there, we're in the arms of the beloved. And so there's a time to be a little masculine and I think at the beginning of the journey, it's helpful just to, to 
to give oneself a container because often when there are too many possibilities when this container gets uncomfortable then we move to the next one until it gets uncomfortable when we when it mirrors us too clearly then it's like we're off you know I'm out of here you know I hate meditation I'm going to do yoga and then when you know yoga gets too much then it's I'm going to be a Sufi dervish you know <laughs> None of us are like that, but we've heard of people who are like that. <laughs> you know, and then we look at renunciation, which is a very masculine thing. I mean, it's about saying, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to have sex. You know, I'm going to be celibate or I'm going to renounce the world. I'm going to go into a monastery. Uh, I'm going to renounce food maybe or, you know, as the uh, Muslims do in Ramadan, they renounce food for a month, you know during the day and renunciation you know is great you know when I was a monk it was a wonderful thing to renounce but then when you're in the monastery you also get a sense of how identified one can get in the role you know one can get just so masculine so into renouncing I can renounce more you know I can sleep two hours a night well tomorrow I'll do one hour a night you know and so it's almost like holding the beauty of both, that there is a time for renouncing and then the voice of the feminine is and there's a time for including, you know. And so to have both and it's almost like the renunciation can birth in us an experienced capacity to be more inclusive. So if the renunciation leads to inclusion it would seem how beautiful and then it might be that we go back into renunciation. So it's like not identifying with one but having uh, a palette that includes both. I love that right at the end of the four quartets of T.S. Eliot where he's gone through just this whole agony of self-acknowledgement and looking at the world and he says you know at the end we arrive at the place where we started and know it for the first time. It's almost like our eyes are opened and we see it for what it is for the first time. We have to come back to where we started and know it for the first time. A theme, you know, through all literature in Zen there's the ox herding pictures, you know, where we, we tame the ox but eventually the ox goes back into the marketplace but it's like, you know, an enlightened ox, you know, <laughs> awakened ox. So beautiful. So, you know, the male is about effort, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we hear in Zen about effortless effort you know, no effort. But it takes effort to be present. And then it's almost like when we present, then it's like we have to stop. You know, we can get out of the driver's seat, we can just be. So it's like just working with effort can be the work of a lifetime. I mean, how many people have you seen meditating who's like, I will be here at the beginning of the next breath if it kills me. <laughs> and through the whole life of this, damn breath <laughs> you know, to its conclusion and you know you know and it's like we we bringing to bear you know often the same patterns that we live our lives and so we see in the practice how we relive the patterns of a lifetime and we see that actually you know a full rich meaningful life doesn't necessarily require that we crucify ourselves I know that none of this applies to us, but I'm just mentioning it to be a little inclusive.
You know, one of the sad truths of the masculine and the feminine is that because the feminine is essentially mysterious, that the feminine has never been documented. The, f the feminine is never written down. The feminine is never held in words and concepts. And so when we look back over time, there are intimations of the feminine and the, the incredible schools of Sophia, you know, in Greece. And, you know, there, there are just, just almost like the fragrance of the feminine, but it's never documented. And I think one of the reasons why the, the religious traditions are so masculine, are so patriarchal, is because it's inherent in the nature of the masculine to get specific, to document, to write, to conceptualize, to hold, to freeze. And so I think that one of the reasons why the feminine um, has been such an unacknowledged and un essentially practiced force in so many of the great traditions is just because of its very nature. And so it feels critical, you know, at this time as we struggle and we ponder what is it that is going to save our world? What is it that is going to open our hearts so that we are informing the collective in a way that is healing? It feels critical that there be an embodiment for all of us, irrespective of our gender, of both the feminine and of the, of the masculine. And the sad thing is that when, if the feminine is suppressed, we all lose. I remember when I lived in Iran, um, I used to look at these young girls, you know, they were two or three years old, just barely able to walk, and they were already wrapped up in their chadors, and their only experience of life was, was their eyes, you know, through, through their eyes. And so, you know, one even, you know, as a man, I can't even begin to imagine how, how such a circumstance can circumscribe the heart and the capacity to experience life with a, with a feeling of oneness and in connection, you know, interconnection with others. And I had a really good friend, uh, Jilly. She was a, a, a British woman and she was gorgeous. She was blonde, blue eyes. And this was long before Princess Di. This was in the 70s. But when Princess Di was on the scene, it was like she always reminded me of Jilly. Jilly was tall and statuesque and she was in, she was one of my best friends in Tehran and she would come home at night and she would be crying. Recording tapes, very masculine thing. <laughs> and often when she was crying it was because the women in the chadors would come up to her and would grab her arm through their chador, you know, the black veil, and would twist her arm and bruise her. And they were jealous because, you know, the husband who was walking half a dozen steps ahead would be all eyes for this blonde bombshell who was walking down the street, you know. And so it was almost like the feminine you know, the oppression of the feminine internalized and expressed in that way. I mean, it diminishes everyone when any one of us are, are diminished. That really, really shook me, what happened for her, you know, again and again.
And so it feels like the challenge both in meditation is just in some way just feeling into rather than than feeling like we have a form or that the instructions that I offer are very specific. It's almost like taking them and making them our own. Not only making them our own, but making them our own moment to moment. The question is really not am I doing it right? Is am I present? And what is it out of these tools in my toolbox, be they masculine or feminine, that I can bring to bear in this moment that will bring me to an experience of what's happening right now that is that is true, that um, that uh, will bring an end to 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 suffering. Now, given that you know any spiritual practice that is concerned with transformation, that is concerned with the end of suffering, you know, I mean, if we come here and what we do here is really confined to our cushions then really what we're doing is just a, a cushion trip you know we're just into another good experience like you know you know going to the movies and it's either a good movie or it's a bum movie but that's it but really if what brings us to our cushions is just this thirsting this yearning for a living of these qualities in our lives for living a life that is way more present than we ever thought possible. Where life is not lived moving away from the unpleasant and inclining towards the pleasant, but is lived with a felt capacity to say yes to whatever is. And then out of that yes, that embracing, that very feminine receptivity of life, we then calibrate our way through life, not necessarily giving ourselves to situations that feel uncomfortable, never but not closing off automatically, which is really fundamental to the human nature. And so in closing, I'd like to just speak a little more personally about some ways in which I've grappled and struggled with the living of these qualities of the masculine and the feminine. And then what we'll do is, at the end of the talk, we'll go back into silence and we'll have a silence that'll go through through lunchtime and then this afternoon I will re-evoke this talk so there's no need to think oh, I must remember that if there's a pressing question I'll re-evoke it and often what we're finding is that the silence really deepens whatever it is that is happening here and the talk that happens is so much richer for a period of silence following it, which is very feminine, very mysterious, just allowing this just to be, to be held. And then we'll come back and there'll be a body of time for, for looking and maybe looking at circumstances in our lives and looking at the meditation practice and exploring together ways in which we might skillfully consider bringing the masculine and feminine. You know, in the teachings of the Buddha, there are these qualities that are called the divine abodes. And the divine abodes are really beautiful. These are the qualities of loving kindness and compassion. And these are qualities that are cultivated in meditation of equanimity and joy in the happiness of others. And each of these divine abodes has what is called a near enemy. It's almost like compassion and the near enemy of compassion is pity. 
you know, it sounds almost the same, you know, you know, my heart's open to this person, but then the pity is almost like, you know, there's that extra little bit of condescending, separating. And the near enemy of unconditional love is the kind of love that is like a sort of a business person's love, you know. You love me, I love you, you know, or I love you if you, be if you behave the way I'd like you to behave, you know. And so the near enemy of these divine abodes is very interesting because they can get very subtle. And it feels like there are near enemies with the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. I mean, we only have to look around at the, at the world to see how, you know, the magnificent qualities of the masculine, you know, of, you know, of being resolved and keeping the eye on the prize have created havoc all over the world in almost like the negative faces of the masculine. The masculine that is competitive, the masculine that, that wants dominion over, the masculine that is assertive and intolerant of the other. And it's not only in, in wars and in the violence of, of, you know, economic equality and all the ways in which, you know, man is overbearing in relationship to other man, meaning human to human. But, you know, they're, 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 that it, you know, it can just be in the ways that we are intolerant of one another even in our religious institutions, you know, in the ways in which beautiful transformative teachings coming through the filter of the masculine can be prescriptive, can be divisive. I mean, one of the things that the Buddha said was, he said, if you heap scorn or criticize the path of another, he says, you do nothing but discredit your own way. And that felt so trustworthy. And it feels so important in a world today where, where there's so much one-upmanship, even in, you know, in the spiritual landscape, in the religious landscape. But the negative face of the mother too can be very destructive and very insidious. You know, the, one of the ways in which the negative mother manifests so often is in what is called, you know, what I heard called sort of funny, but it's tragic, is like smother mother, you know? The smother mother, the overbearing mother, the mother who possesses the child. And then, you know, the child grows up without any sense of boundaries, a sense of, of entitlement, a sense of being special, and all the, all, all the ways in which, in which that can happen. You know, and the, you know, the mother can, can, in some ways, in the nurturing, there can also be currents of, of coercion and, and um, uh, you know, and of a gender. And so it feels like in the manifesting of the masculine and the feminine, it really requires an experienced capacity to really be true and be willing to really look at how we're bringing ourselves as the masculine, as the feminine to our circumstances of life. Because let's face it, even if we grew up in the most enlightened families, you know, we've all been hurt in our upbringing because we were brought up by parents who, who were not perfect and who probably did the very best that they could. And at some point in the evolution of our heart and mind, it feels critical 
that we take on for ourselves the mothering and fathering that we didn't receive. It's almost like we may fill in the blank places or we may actually embody the mother and the father that we didn't have. At some point there needs to be a removal of the fixation of history and a felt experience of how we can truly and lovingly mother and father ourselves particularly I think as we embody the masculine and feminine more and more in our lives. I don't know if any of you read that wonderful book The Secret Life of Bees. Well, it's really great and Suman Kidd is, is the author of this book and essentially where are the glasses? Okay, here they are. It's set in the era of the civil rights in the South and it's the story, this beautiful story of this young white girl who goes in search of her mother who died when she was very young. She knows nothing about her mother except she had this black Madonna and so uh, she, she went armed with this little black Madonna and the black woman who brought her up in search of her mother. And it's this glorious story. She ends up in the home of these three black sisters in the South and uh, August is like the matriarch of the house and she's wonderful older woman and there's Lily who's uh, not even an adolescent yet and uh, August says to Lily, the young girl, she says listen to me now Lily I'm going to tell you something I want you always to remember alright? Her face had grown serious, intent, her eyes did not blink all right, I said, and I felt something electric slide up and down my spine. August continued, Our Lady is not some magical being out there somewhere, like a fairy godmother. She's not the statue in the parlor either. She's something inside of you. Do you understand what I'm telling you, Lily? Our Lady is inside of me, I repeated, not sure that I did understand. And then August continued, she said, you have to find the mother inside of yourself. We all do. Even if we already have a mother, we still have to find this part of ourself inside. Secret life of bees. And so there's this, this embodying of the masculine and the feminine and there was when the synagogues were bombed in Istanbul in November it was just this little piece that I'm sure almost didn't find its way into the newspaper that I feel embodied the masculine and the feminine so incredibly you know in a, in a country and in a world so 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 much in the agony of violence and separation. Three things happened in Istanbul after this synagogue was bombed and people were killed. First, the chief rabbi of Turkey appeared at the ceremony. Hand in hand with the top Muslim cleric of Istanbul and the local mayor, while crowds in the street threw red carnations on them. 
Second, the Turkish leader who comes from an Islamist party paid a visit to the chief rabbi. The first time a Turkish prime minister had ever called on the chief rabbi. And third, and the most revealing, was a statement made by the father of one of the Turkish suicide bombers who'd hit the synagogue. And he said, we are a respectful family who love our nation, our flag, and the Quran. The grieving father continued, but we cannot understand why this child, why my child, had done the things that he's done. First, let us meet with the chief rabbi of our Jewish brothers. Let me hug him, let me kiss his hands and his flowing robes, and let me apologize in the name of my son and offer my condolences for the deaths. We will be damned if we do not reconcile with them. You know, we can look out at the world and it's so easy sometimes, you know, to see it as men and to see it as women and you know we, 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 we look at the human beings who embody the feminine so beautifully like these men and men like Mikhail Gorbachev and, and uh, um, Havel, I can't remember his first name, uh, Poland, the former president of Poland and Nelson Mandela you know and there are women who embody the masculine you know, women like Hillary Clinton and Indira Gandhi, you know, Lingo, Governor Lingo, you know, Madeleine Albright, you know, and it feels so important to go beyond the gender and to, to look at the whole picture beyond the distinctions that are so, so habitual. And so for me, sometimes it's been really difficult over the years as someone who's tried to do the best I can and to live a, as decent a life as possible. How is it if those are my aspirations? Can I not want to spend time with certain people at some times? How is it that I can give myself permission to say, no, I don't think I'm available for a friendship with you at the moment. It's felt deep down like what's true to the moment. And yet, I so often have been hoodwinked by all these voices that say, if you're a good spiritual person, you love everybody, include everybody, and you don't want to hurt them. And this has really helped me realize that there are seasons. There are seasons to renounce. We never do this, hopefully, with anger and divisiveness. We just say, this is not a time when I can spend time with you. This is, this, is, this is a time when it needs to be a little differently. And just in the experiencing of that willingness to be a little masculine, of honoring the deepest currents of ourselves, I think we birth and bless ourselves in the unfolding of time with the capacity to eventually include everybody in our hearts without extinction. And so how we set boundaries, who we associate with, you know, I think, you know, we, you know, I think that there are sort of voices of almost like spiritual terrorism that hold us to what's right and wrong and what's good and bad. And do we have the courage to go deeper? And to, to at sometimes even embody a kind of tough love voice 
And it's nothing about there being a lack of love. It's just a question of loving what's appropriate to the moment. It's not about the other. It's about a flowering that we will not betray. And I think lastly, I'd just like to acknowledge that, you know, I think that we are all so informed by a, a collective addiction to keeping busy, you know, which is so masculine, that it is so difficult for us in this world that is so fast to really stop, to bless ourselves with deep rest. I was with two friends who were struggling with big decisions and they asked me to help them and they were just embroiled in all the pros and cons and the negatives and positives and I said to them, you know, can you give yourself permission to not know for a couple of weeks and to, and to just wait and just see and not feel compelled to have the answer right here and right now. Such a feminine approach, you know, such a beautiful place. If we take ourselves out of the masculine, bless ourselves and just wait. If we'd waited after 9-11, if, if our president said, let's have two weeks of mourning and just wait and listen to what we must do. How different our world would be. There's that wonderful poem, I've got it somewhere. Um, Pablo Neruda, where he says, you know, if we could all stand still. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. And for once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's not stop for a second. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment. Without rush, without engines, we would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm the whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their sisters and brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. May we sit together for a moment, please. Thank you. So what I'd like to invite you to do in the next while, say 10 or 
so minutes before we come together for a last meditation before lunch is first of all really ask you to keep the silence this silence and togetherness is such blessing and the invitation is just you may want to get a cup of tea or a glass of water and just be with yourself for a while maybe just go to a quiet place go for a walk and if somebody would be a bell ringer please would someone volunteer to ring the bell in the bell thank you very much so the gong is over here the gong is here and if you would ring it a little loudly outside so that people can hear maybe in the front of the building too say in 15 minutes and then if we could come together uh, then and we'll have a final meditation before we break for lunch and to really please um, it's so impulsive to want to talk especially after something like this so really want to ask you to preserve and respect the blessing of this silence so it's 12.25 Mary Beth say it just before 20 to 1 if you would ring the bell thank you thank you